Well, welcome to another edition of our Learning and Evaluation Spotlight Series. Today, we talked with Dr. Gladys Rowe, who was remarkable and amazing. And I keep thinking about her saying that she wanted to leave behind more than she took after an evaluation project. And I thought that just really, I think, encapsulates her orientation to evaluation, that it's generative, that it's generous, that it gives in uh, to the communities that she's serving. And I just thought she was amazing. How about you, Gabe? Yeah, it was a brilliant conversation. I loved it. You know, we talked about finding your people in, in this work, sharing visions with one another, building foundations, celebrating each other, in undoing internal narratives, you know, particularly around how we do evaluation from an Indigenous perspective. And then we talked about decolonial futures that feel alive and um, an Indigenous resurgence. So it was, a, it was a tremendous conversation and I'm just so excited that listeners get to enjoy it. We hope you like it. We hope you like it. Well, welcome, Dr. Gladys Rowe. We are delighted to have you here with us today. Uh, Gladys is an Indigenous scholar doing work that supports Indigenous resurgence through many pathways, including leading Indigenous evaluation and learning, uh, supporting Indigenous birth keepers, designing curriculum, and sharing stories through workshops, through film, and how we got to know Gladys through podcasting. She is a member of Fox Lake Cree Nation Treaty 5 in Northern Manitoba and also holds relations with ancestors from Ireland, England, Norway, and Ukraine. And she is host of Indigenous Insights and Evaluation podcast, which I can't recommend highly enough. And we're just so happy to have you here with us today, Gladys. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you. Oh, Gladys, you also, I did not realize it until just this moment, you have a radio voice. You're like, it was like, <laughs> thank you. I'm so glad. I, was like, oh. I have been told that many times, which is one of the reasons why I was like, yeah, I'll do a podcast. People keep yeah. telling me I should do it. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. You should. Yeah, you should be reading meditation apps and things like that, too. It's like completely. I love it. All right. Okay, fine. I'll bring us back to where we're going to go. So you're an evaluator. Can you, and in addition to many things, but can you tell me how did you come to this work? What, what brought you to evaluation? Yeah, it's been quite a journey and I'm learning that, you know, people just have had different journeys into this field. I definitely did not go to school to be an evaluator. I didn't graduate high school and say, I'm going to go find a program that teaches me how to do evaluation. <laughs> right. Um, and in fact, I didn't even know those existed for a very long time. So I started out, uh, I became evaluator by way of becoming a social worker. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, it wasn't a very good experience in being a social worker to begin mm -hmm. with. You know, I, mm -hmm. I uh, received my education and was working in different organizations in Calgary, Alberta, actually, for quite a while, moving from place to place, trying to figure mm -hmm. out, like, where do I fit? Because I just kept feeling like there just wasn't a space where I was doing the work that I wanted to do. I mm. felt like um, I felt like a gatekeeper to resources that ah. just weren't enough. Um, mm -hmm. I felt like I was having to make judgments that didn't align with my values. Right. I was really um, burning out really quickly because I didn't have the skills or the capacity to, I think, address the the changes that, or the 
yeah, the changes that really needed to happen. But I didn't have the words or the theory for that as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I just really felt uncomfortable. Um, And so I had, there's been so many kind of decision points in, in my career journey and in my personal journey where I could have ended up doing something different. I thought, you know what, social work isn't for me. Maybe I need to find a different career. But in that point of, of kind of decision making, I received an invitation to, uh, start to work on, uh, a research project actually in Manitoba. So we moved, my family moved from Calgary to Manitoba, which is, I have a lot of family in Manitoba. I was born in Winnipeg. Mm. Um, and so a move back home felt kind of right at that transition point in time. Um, and, and started to, um, I was just finishing up, um, you know, starting to think about my master's, uh, and was invited to be a research assistant on this project, um, the strengthening families, maternal child health, Mm. um, program, uh, in Manitoba for Manitoba first nation communities. And so I traveled with a, a fellow, uh, colleague who's still a good friend, like way back in 2008, um, to 13 different first nations across. Manitoba to gather um, experiences and stories from mm. families with young children to understand like what are your community what are your priorities what do you want to mm. see in your community what's important to you um, and then that that information um, was then used to adapt um, a home visiting program. Um, for those First Nation communities. And I stayed on as a part of the evaluation team because I I was hooked. I was like, wow, mm. we can gather information that is then made useful by being put into action in a program that's, you know, directly then impacting the lives of the people who had the ability to inform Mm. that program. And then we can learn about it uh, through this thing called evaluation. And I hadn't heard, like I hadn't been a part of any of those kinds of experiences. And so that was my first kind of taste. um, And and I was hooked Um, and, and, you know, went on to get my master's. I took, uh, took one program evaluation course in all of my master's program. Um, yeah, so there was that one course, um, but but really, really, you know, my journey into evaluation was through this community driven participatory research process that really mm-hmm. um, was grounded in uh, Indigenous communities in Manitoba, and so my my learning was through community work, you mm. know, through and through. Well, I'm so interested to hear you say that for any number of reasons. One is that. I was a clinical social worker and I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't, this is not what I want to be doing. I'm writing down diagnose. I'm diagnosing people all day. You know what I mean? To get money into a system that I don't believe in. It just was like such a, such a d- d- disconnect for me on what mm-hmm. I was actually doing, even though I wanted to help people. So when you said social worker and I just wasn't finding it, so like there's a part of me that like really identified. But then when you said I got my master's, I was like, and yet I can't imagine me ever getting my master's in evaluation. You know what I mean? Just because it's, it feels in my mind like such a different mindset, except that when you talk about coming in through community, when you talk about like you were hooked and I wrote down the words impact, right? Like you could see what you were doing, having an impact that feels very aligned with what would one, one would want to do as a social worker. And so what an interesting way in through community, through community you cared about through kind of like our youngest people, right? Mm-hmm. 
other things to say because we're working working on a birth center equity work right now. Anyway, I have lots I want to talk with you about, but maybe I'll let Gabe ask a question. Well, I just what struck me was how positive that first experience of evaluation mm-hmm. was for you and for the communities that you were working with, and that, you know, and the impact that that Tuesday pointed out. I mean, what an incredible way to be introduced to a field that actually has a tremendous amount of baggage in it, particularly for indigenous communities, for communities of color. Um, and we'll get to that later, but I just, it's just like such a great spark to hear, uh, to hear that kind of very tangible, real and meaningful impact as, as the, the start to your work in this area. And so I'm really curious. I mean, it's one thing to be inspired to start in a particular direction, but what's really kept you in the field of evaluation over time? Why are you still here? Such a great question, because even though that was that was a positive experience, it was embedded within the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Manitoba. And so, so many layers of challenging experiences with Indigenous communities, with academics, with researchers, with medical professionals, with, with evaluators, with all of these things. So how did I stay? Uh, how did I stay here? Well, um, I found out early on that one of the, you know, really important and supportive things for myself and through trial and error it wasn't like I you know came into this space and knew how to support myself so that I was um, doing the work I love to do but was really through finding my people um, and so you know a collective group of people who are committed to a common vision and support one another you know in building our own foundations of who we are and why this work is important to us and also coming together and celebrating each other and, and holding each other up. And so, you know, my community, it started on that first, very first project, um, you know, was led by Dr. Rachel Ini, who is uh, really, I want to say an anti-academic, um, like A-N-T-I uh, academic and showed me what was possible in this field that I didn't think that I could fit within. Like I never thought that I would be someone who would eventually go on to receive, uh, to complete a PhD, who could be seen as a scholar, who can contribute in this academic space, because the space wasn't really like this field of evaluation, the field of research, the field of learning isn't really, I think, um, welcoming. I don't know. There's so many words there. Uh, you know, it wasn't a space I saw myself in and I, I certainly didn't see myself getting a master's or a PhD. And so there's all of the like undoing of these internal narratives that had to happen in order for me to, um, to remain doing this work. And it was because of that collective community that I'm here. I joke with people that like, I haven't interviewed for work since about 2009. Um, I just like people just keep finding me. And, um, and I think that's, you know, the, the, the projects that, um, that I get to be invited into really align with how I want to show up in my work. So it's just like this reinforcing space. I've, I've learned a lot as well about like how to assess whether a project is in alignment with mm. how I want to work Ooh. and how I can yes. show up. Right. There's been a lot of like, oops, 
this really isn't the space that I think I can contribute to, or I'm not sure I have the energy to do the foundational work that needs to happen in order for this work to proceed in the way that I know it has to happen. Right. And so there's been a lot of like figuring out what works for me. And so, you know, the journey from 2008 to to now 2023 has been a really, really long one um, that has had, has had me questioning, like, what am I doing here? What am I contributing to? How can I show up in a way that is in alignment with who I am, um, that I don't lose myself in what I think an evaluator should be or what I think an academic or a scholar or whatever all of those things should be? So yeah, it's been, you know, through community, through those collective supports, through really getting to know and being comfortable and standing in the truth of like who I am and the gifts that I have to offer because my gifts are different than everyone else's gifts. And so figuring out that has been an important journey as well. Obviously, this is not going to be on the questions we sent you, but you just opened it up. So I have, I mean, there's just so much I want to ask you about. So I- many things. I mean, I have a list now. You said it wasn't a field I saw myself in. I had to undo a lot of internal narratives about who I was and what, it- and I would just look, could you just dive a little deeper for- with us into that? Like, what did you have to undo and how did these people you find found help you undo it? What was that undoing process? I remember sitting in classrooms in my master's degree and thinking that, you know, what I was learning wasn't really congruent with what I was seeing in my community work and how, um, how I was learning how to show up for community in community. It was kind of different than what I was being taught in terms of, um, you know, in my, in my coursework and my master's. And so there was like this incongruence, like, do I, do I do what's being, do I mold myself or move myself into the ways that are being taught within the classroom? Because that's what ex- what's expected in order to be, um, you know, someone who has a master of social work um, degree uh, or how, and or like, what do I do with what I'm learning in community about how to show up in good ways and about what they're teaching me about what's important mm-hmm. And, and how to do that work. And so, you know, there was kind of this, this back and forth because I'm a good student. I can, I can figure out what you like, what is wanted and what is needed. And I can do that. Mm -hmm. I totally can. Mm -hmm. But whether it's moving me in a direction that is, that I'll then recognize who I am by the Mm -hmm. end of that journey, that Mm -hmm. was what I was really kind of grappling with in my master program, master's program in particular. And so fighting that narrative of, am I going to, because, you know, university programs are, are, they're colonial institutions and, and they, they're really grounded in your Western ideas of what knowledge is and what research is and what is expected of a student within them. And so, um, I could very easily have uh, gathered all of that and done it in a way where I would have been very successful at, um, you know, doing that, but at what cost to myself? Right. So then there became a space where I was like, am I even good enough to be in this program? Am I really questioning uh, where, where my space was in the program, kind of unlearning um, the really kind of air that 
I breathed about what it means to be a good scholar, a good academic, a good student, figuring out how to push back at it. And that's where my community really comes in is that, you know, within within that program, within the community organizations and leaders, traditional knowledge keepers, um, Indigenous scholars who were within institutions, um, really uh, being my sounding board. Like uh, I would sit in my advisor's office and there's so many times where um, I would just, he'd just hand me the box of tissue because <laughs> he would know that, you know, like processing my experience in the classroom was, was really hard. Um, but I knew that, you know, I was working towards achieving something at the end of it. And that's something that I was achieving would allow me a little bit more credibility with this world um, of funders and, you know, programming and uh, government agencies and all of those things that I needed to be seen as credible within. And so, you know, there was that tension that that really happened within that process. Thank you for, for sharing that. And, you know, and I'm thinking also of the Indigenous students that I've supported along the way and how often what it takes to navigate classrooms and academic spaces in these colonial institutions. I mean, they impact everybody to some degree. Yeah, <laughs> and definitely. And the impact it has on Indigenous students, on students of color, on, you know, and it's just, um, I mean, it's incredible that you, you, you took what you could from that learning and you are here offering brilliance. I mean, I'm thinking about your gathering a bundle for Indigenous evaluation. And now as you've shared this story, I'm thinking about the personal journey and the collective community journey that you were on that then allows that publication to come forward in this way that is, is, is a sorting of all of those parts and assumptions and expectations. And so would love to hear more about that. What was that process like for you? And, and what, what does that offer into the world in terms of, of gathering a bundle for Indigenous evaluation? That publication that I was involved in, in supporting and, and bringing together, was really a time where I was so happy doing work in community. I had just finished my master's. I had just started my PhD. Um, funnily enough, I had said, I'm not going to work all the way through my PhD like I did my master's. But then I received an invitation from Diane Rusin, who's the exec, uh, the director of the Winnipeg Boldness Project, to come on board and to support uh, that work. And so that's an Indigenous innovation project in Winnipeg. And we started together as a small group in 2014. And this Indigenous Evaluation Bundle is one of the pieces of work um, that I got to support as a, as a, a member of that team. So the bundle um, and the idea for it uh, really came from work that was being done in the north end of Winnipeg for decades. Indigenous leaders, knowledge keepers, organizations who were supporting and continue to support community members in a way that's aligned with Indigenous practices, Indigenous ways of knowing, being, and doing. And so they would tell in, in meetings and conversations, they would share their frustrations that the funding that they were receiving was tied to evaluation that 
didn't understand the way they were working with community, that didn't really get to what made their work successful with community members. It was just really in misalignment, you know, the the expectation of evaluation um, which was for you know often first really poorly resourced n- comes in at the end has an imposed set of indicators and, and measures and outcomes of success, but organizations who are looking for resources apply and receive this funding because they know that doing the work is important whether they receive you know so there's that whole complexity of of um, you know kind of buying into these um, evaluations because they need the money to do the work. And so um, this conversation had been happening for longer than I had been around um, supporting uh, this work in in Winnipeg's North End. Uh, But I was in this space of the Winnipeg Boldness Project where we had some resources as we were thinking about Indigenous innovation and how we tell the story of Indigenous innovation Mm. in a way that's aligned with, um, you know, using evaluation principles and and methods and um, ways of sharing story that's aligned with uh, Indigenous practices. So we had this opportunity to tell that story and to and to create something that would push back at the evaluation expectations and practices that were just continually imposed upon Indigenous organizations. And so this uh, Indigenous evaluation uh, bundle was an invitation to think about what could what could look different, mm-hmm. who needs to be involved, how can we ask different questions, and really importantly, how do we start doing evaluation in a way that is more in alignment with our worldviews? And it starts with understanding, like, what are the values and principles that we are basing evaluation on? What are the questions that we are asking? Who needs to be involved in designing those questions? And, um, and how can we make sure that how we are learning about success is actually aligned with how the programs are being delivered. Um, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but I could I could add, I could elaborate. Um, you know, that was just such a, a critical point in time for me where I thought, man, I'm so lucky to be able to be this person who uh, brings together all of these experiences and knowledges about doing things in a different way. Well, what's incredible about that as I as I listen to you share that is piecing together or overlaying this personal story for you and and noticing the the process of untangling those the colonial euro western mindset from the classroom or from the academic studies into your own work and then into community and how important that is as an as an evaluator and in that role for you and i'm just like what will you teach that course (laughs) the personal process of of decolonizing the self to be able to show up with community um in a way that is responding to what's what's deeply needed and Mm -hmm. and to not impose those invisible yet powerful overarching um narratives and expectations. Um, so anyway, I was just really struck by that as, as you, as you were speaking. I 
think it would actually be useful. Like so much of what you said, I feel like, you know, I, I, I use my own body, right. Is like my barometer. Like so much of what you said, I was like, Oh, my heart would be like, you know, like open or like, Oh, what's that mean? Um, and so I want to just, and maybe it's obvious to the two of you as evaluators, but there were some things you said that I'm like, what, it, what does that look like? So like when you say, how do we tell the story that's reflective and in alignment with indigenous organizations, you know, what are the values and principles? Can you give me some sense of like, what are the values and principles you found? How is that different from more traditional uh, evaluation? How, what did you, how do you tell the story? What does that mean? And just like in specifics, if you can, I know that we're talking broad strokes, but I think that there might be some of us that like, that sounds amazing. What does that look like? So in the so in the context of the work that I did at the Winnipeg Boldness Project, we spent a year. So I was the research and evaluation person, and there was three other team members. So we were a small team working on this uh, innovation project that was looking at how can um, how can innovation be a tool for families uh, living in the North End to ensure that their children, who, you know, families with children age zero to six, are thriving um, so that they can, um, you know, live a life that is holistically well. Um, and so, in in this massive undertaking that this uh, that this project had, I was the one who was tasked with figuring out how to how to tell that story. Like how, the the project wasn't even shaped. You know about innovation work. Like the project was yeah. was really mm-hmm. broad. It was flexible. It was iterative. Yeah. It was all of those things <laughs> that make it, um, evaluating it. Um, a little bit of a panic. This this is my first experience (laughs) in innovation work as well. And I was like, okay, I can do this. You know, Diane would talk about building the plane as we're flying it. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. and I'm the one who's like running along behind, like with this recorder and this, this notepad with trying to keep track of everything that's happening, because I know what we're doing was, was and is so important. They're still doing that work as we speak. So what that looked like in the first year when we started to build um, the work of building relationships. So that's one of the, you know, values and principles that is really central. So building relationships. When we started to do that work, uh, it took us a whole year. And you could you could see that, that first year as like, um, if you wanted to use evaluation terminology or research terminology, like a needs assessment, a community needs assessment. Mm -hmm. Um, But what that looked like in reality for us is how are we building strong relationships? How are we showing up in a community that um, builds trust uh, on what does that look like? And how are we building um, mechanisms for relational accountability? Relational accountability is how are we accountable to one another in the work that we're doing? How am I accountable for how I'm showing up? How am I accountable for carrying the stories in a good way that are being shared with me? And what can community expect from me and hold me accountable to in the same time? Mm -hmm. And so starting to, you know, centralizing those values and principles, what that looked like for us in that first year was getting to know community. We hosted community events. We showed up in community spaces. We, um, did so in a way that 
gathered stories or, or invited people into conversations through circle methodology. So we invited people into circle. We followed cultural protocols in that we invited them into circle with the passing of tobacco, which is a very, um, you know, sacred relational responsibility when you pass tobacco to someone. It says, um, it indicates, I am asking you to share of yourself and I will take good care of what is shared in that relationship, right? And so we invited people into circle. Inviting them into circle meant that we resourced that circle in a way that they could show up as their whole selves. So we have knowledge keepers are supporting us through that process. We have food, we feast, we eat together. Mm-hmm. We um, provide bus tickets, we provide childcare, we provide honorariums for gift cards for them to show up in that space to say, we we honor you, we honor your knowledge, we are going to take good care of it. And this is what we're going to do with what you're sharing with us. And so those, that, that circle process was one that we used in many different spaces. Another um, example of what those values look like was showing up at community events and, and becoming, being a part of the community. Each of us at different points in our life, had lived, worked uh, in the north end of Winnipeg. And so, you know, we felt like we, uh, that community was a piece of our identity, but that didn't mean that we had the right to show up and say, hey, we're a community too, so you should talk to us and tell us all of these things, right? So um, that relationship building, showing, showing up at community events, gathering, what are the priorities for you and your kids in this community? We had so many different, you know, post-it notes, stop mom. We had surveys, we had conversations, we had, you know, um, write your, write whatever you think on this like um, poster board and so many different ways of just um, hearing and witnessing and making visible the priorities of community in that time, which Mm -hmm. really, I think, you know, when we think about relational accountability, um, showing a community that we valued them and that the work that we were doing really um, was and is uh, based on their wisdom and their experiences. So throughout that time, though, we would we would reflect on, okay, what's being shared with us? What does this mean? And we would take it back and we would say to community members, we would then say, come, come and gather in our space. Let's let's eat together again and let's present back what we think we're hearing. And we sometimes got it right, sometimes got it wrong. But we, mm-hmm. you know, went through those cycles of listening and ensuring that we were on the right track. Another tool that we used for gathering story, for telling story in a way that that was um, aligned with um, those values and principles was through photo voice. Um, So I use a lot of arts-based methods uh, within the way that I work. Um, I use poetry, I use photography, collages, painting, lots of things like that. Different ways of expressing story that allow people to show up Uh, in a way that feels comfortable for them. And so we invited Mm -hmm. community members into a photo voice project that asked them to think about, like, why do you love your community? What is important in your community? And, you know, where... 
what do you want for your children for their future? And out of the the group in that photo voice project, they became um, a guiding group, a, a parent and caregiver guide group who um, continue, you know, 2014, nine years later to guide the direction of the project and the evaluation. We met continually and and built built capacity, and they they um, they deliver surveys in community and do the analysis. Like there's just so many layers of what it looks like when I say you know the values and principles, and then and then putting those values and principles into action. Yeah, so those are some examples. I hope they're helpful. Yeah, that's so so helpful, and um, yeah, just like really kind of grounds it in like what it what it could look like. Right. We often have the aspiration to do these things, but like you're saying, like you're just pulling it down, like actually this is what it looks like. And Gabe, I'm going to let you ask a question, but I just want to um, call back to another one of our guests, Dr. Dominica McBride, who talks about um, seeing evaluation as a tool for healing oppression that actually to go in and do some of the things and, and, and her work would be, I think, deeply aligned with what you're doing, like to go into community, to give them voice, to share a mirror back. This is, this is what you're saying. Do we have it right? Can we stay in relationship? What will it take? What do you need, you know, for marginalized, colonized, oppressed communities is, is a tool of healing. Um, and so you haven't used that word, but it just was making me think about hearing that from her and why she cared about evaluation. Mm-hmm. Obviously impact, but it's um, it, it is an intervention that interrupts colonization, yeah. interrupts racism, interrupts marginalization and exploitation in really concrete ways. Yeah, you know the idea that I I'm leaving behind more than I take, and so what does that look like? That looks like people being able to see themselves as competent and skilled and experienced evaluators and reclaiming that, right? The idea is being able to see themselves in that space and say, yeah, I know how to do this and I can do this for my community. That's incredible, leaving behind more than I take. And and I want to ask you later, we will ask you about how you, you build that capacity, but I want to stay on this thread because I think it's it's so important and you bring some exceptional experience to it. And so with these principles and these practices around building trust with community, relational accountability, that it can be this significant intervention um, in, you know, in colonial dynamics, in dynamics of oppression, but that not all evaluation is, right? Men, evaluation can actually amplify all of those things. And so I'm really curious, you said earlier, I've learned a lot about how to assess if a project is right and if I have the energy to do the foundational work required. And so I would just love to hear from you. How do you bring that protection lens into working with community, with how you navigate those power dynamics, funding dynamics, expectations, and how you discern, is this, is this the right project for me? Is this, is, is it going to support community? Um, that's a big question. But there it is. That, <laughs> that is a big question. And I will see what I can do. Um, so so first of all, I wanna I wanna share kind of a realization that I came to as I've been doing this community work around my own 
boundaries um, mm-hmm. that is is really important. And my advisor really helped me to make visible and name what was happening for me. Because like I said earlier, like I haven't looked for work in a very long time. Work would just keep finding me, um, which was exciting because as someone who came from scarcity, mm-hmm. as someone who grew up um, uh, not having a lot, the ability to provide for myself and my family in a way mm-hmm. that I didn't think was possible previously was important. And so I was saying yes to absolutely everything because I didn't know. I didn't know when the next thing would come. You know, doing contract work um, is a little bit scary, um, but I didn't know when the next thing would come. I didn't know how to, uh, you know, do all of that kind of forward planning. I would just say, yes, I think I could fit you in. And also because I knew that the work that I, um, that people were asking me to do was important to them, that it was, Mm -hmm. you know, a priority for them. And so how to, yeah, there was just that kind of realization that I had to come to, like, how come I can't say, how come I can't say no? How come I'm burning Mm -hmm. myself out in this work Mm -hmm. supporting community? Mm -hmm. And, and so my advisor, um, he was my advisor for my master's and my PhD, Dr. Michael Hart, um, named for me that, you know, it's coming from that place of scarcity. And that just was an aha moment for me around like some unlearning I needed to do for myself in order to ensure that I can give myself in a good way to the work that I show up to um, and and not be burnt out, not be too spread too thin. And reframing that for me was really helpful. And so that was part of the assessment is am I, am I resourced enough meaning like have I had enough sleep have I been taking Mm -hmm. care of like my physical (laughs) mental emotional spiritual self to say that yes I can show up for this work in the best way possible because I am resourced enough knowing that you know those um, the idea of relational accountability is I'm giving the best I can for the work that I'm doing. And if I'm not resourcing myself well enough, if I'm spread too thin, if I've said yes to too many things, I can't. Yeah. And and it just, it feels, that's that's a horrible feeling to have. And so, you know, being able to say that I can't do this right now, But in six months, if you're still, you know, wanting to do this work, this work is important to me. I would love to talk to you about it. Or so that's like if I assess that the work is something that's a priority for me. Right. And and works towards this um, this longer term vision that uh, that I'm working towards. And that was another way of assessing that I came to learn was. What is it that I'm doing? Um, I would be involved in all of these different projects, doing all of these different things. And my family has this joke that they're like, I don't know what to tell people what you do. You do everything. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and so, you know, that that started some reflection for me about like, how do I tell people what I do? Because, um, you know, I'm not a traditional academic. Uh, I am not you know, an executive director of an organization, there's, there's just like, there's, mm-hmm. there's this weird space that I'm in. And so it forced me to think about like, what is it that I want my work to contribute to in the long term? And that was part of that assessment process as well. 
And so I looked at everything that made me happy that I had done previously, that really felt like a generative project that at the end of it, I was like, wow, I learned a great deal from that project. I contributed to something that was really important to me. And the common thread through all of those projects was that they were helping to move us towards what I like to call like indigenous resurgence mm. um, and or decolonial futures. So it, uh, mm-hmm. something that is different from where we are right now in a way that allows indigenous communities to have, you know, determination over what, what it is that they're doing, their priorities, how they show up in spaces, and also asks people who are also living in, um, you know, what's now called Canada to think about what are the ways that we can build new relationships together so that we can live together in this space in a way that is very different than the way that we're living right now. And so those two ideas of Indigenous resurgence and decolonial futures were another way of me assessing how, like, how do I work on projects that have those kinds of goals towards them? And so if you're thinking about projects that are, you know, it's a buzzword right now, but thinking about like systems change projects. So systems innovation work, um, a lot of those, some of those, maybe not a lot, some of those have that thread of decolonial futures within them, thinking mm-hmm. about like what are diff- what different futures are possible. And, and so I use that as a mechanism, mechanism of assessment. So first, am I resourced enough to th- even think about this work? Second, is this work, um, you know, moving towards a vision that I, I feel is an important one towards the future? And then third, is the work actually resourced in a way that mm. is possible to complete in the way (laughs) that it's envisioned. Mm -hmm. Are there people on board who can do this work? Um, Is this work an afterthought or is this something that's planned at the beginning? Are people who are involved in this work compensated in a way that is uh, equitable and demonstrative of their contribution to the work? Just all of those kinds of resource questions um, in that space. One of the things we we talk about here at the outside, which I mean, you're just doing so maybe not effortlessly, but at least it feels elegantly as we talk with you. Definitely. Is this idea that the amount of change you want to see on the outside, right? If we're trying to move toward a decolonial future, like that's directly impacted with the amount of change you're willing to go through on the inside, right? That you actually like it's it's not it's not an outside job. Nor is it only an inside job, but, you know, like we have to have to be attending to both. And so it makes me want to ask you and answer in whatever way feels comfortable to you. But what is the what is the decolonial future for you, Gladys? What is it that you're moving towards for Hmm. yourself? Hmm. I'm not sure if I have a completely clear vision of what an endpoint looks like. And you didn't even ask me about an endpoint. So I'm not why I'm not sure why I'm I'm looking towards an endpoint. But like what are some of the beacons that mm-hmm. I'm looking for on the pathway to decolonial futures? Maybe I can answer mm-hmm. that in a more precise way. And so some of the things that I'm looking for are how can I stay grounded versus like up in the air? That's what mm-hmm. I'm thinking to myself right now. Mm-hmm. So some of the things that I'm looking for are representation and uh, equity and um, 
accessibility in all of the different institutions that currently exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and recognition within those institutions that currently exist. So I'm thinking about like healthcare, education, post-secondary, um, government, uh, a transformation, a commitment to transformation of those institutions so that when Indigenous peoples uh, are in those spaces, it doesn't feel like a violence to be in those spaces. Mm. So that's like bare minimum. (laughs) It's what I would say. It's like bare minimum. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I would see are indigenous institutions that are self-determining and thriving. Mm. So for example, um, you know, Seven Generations Education Institute in uh, Treaty 3 territory is an indigenous education institute. It is governed by those Treaty 3 territories. It's directed by those community priorities. It's resourced, not well resourced enough, but it is resourced to, to do the work of community, to provide education in a way that is congruent with community ways of knowing, being, and doing, to um, produce graduates that meet the needs of those communities. So like healthcare graduates, um, mm-hmm. early child education graduates, but they're learning how to do that work in ways that are grounded in their cultural protocols and language. Anishinaabe Moen is an amazing presence within that institution. And mm. they're producing, you know, language speakers that are um, truly inspirational in their, in their work. Um, and so it would also, for me, look like Indigenous institutions um, mm. that are well-resourced, that are guided by communities, that are, are able to show up for communities in a way that doesn't come from that scarcity mindset which I think is, you know, a really big challenge um, right now. Mm. Another kind of beacon that I'm looking for is that, you know, our everyday lives are, are, um, there's, there's, and I might sound a little cheesy here, but there's joy and there's love Mm -hmm. and there's community and there's celebration and there's coming together of people in ways that we haven't quite seen yet. So how do we create the space for that to happen for for people who might not have um, met Indigenous peoples? And there is a survey to say that there's a alarmingly, you know, high amount of people in Canada who haven't interacted with Indigenous peoples. But Mm -hmm. um, to to create a space for those interactions that aren't based on, um, you know, stereotypes or um, impoverishment or all of those things that are like the expectation of what it means to interact with an Indigenous person, but just that there's this space for a different kind of community and collective to be held and to emerge and be supportive when that is, yeah, like like that Mm -hmm. sparks joy, that brings joy. And so, you know, I think often about like, what brings joy in, in my life? And that is an act of resistance and resilience and resurgence um, to, to center that idea of joy as opposed to um, the, the, the other kind of narratives that exist. Um, so those are, you know, some of the beacons as we think, as I think about like what decolonial futures could look like, you know, there's certainly institutional layers there, but then there's also, and there's also 
individual relationship and community and collective layers about how we just learn to be in relationship differently with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that too is in opposition to just, you know, capitalist society and all of the individualist expectations mm-hmm. that are placed about on us about like what it means to be a good person, what it means to be a productive person, all of those kinds of things. And it pushes back against those narratives as mm-hmm. well. That was so beautiful. I, you know, as and you, the pause that you took, and then the, I mean, that was really textured and really grounded. And I felt like I was living in that future with you. And to see your face soften and the smiles, I mean, I just, for our listeners, I mean, just also that, that part of the description was really beautiful. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Our last question is just, you know, like we're, we're people in the midst of doing this incredibly hard, joyful, frustrating, engaging, enlivening work. And, um, you know, as just like individual little people, there are things that keep us going. And so we just wanted to ask if you have any, anything that's keeping you going right now, a song, a quote, a poem, anything that kind of you have in your back pocket that keep, that's keeping you going. Yeah, uh, thank you for that question. Um, there's so many different things that I that I have around me that um, that I use, uh, you know, in that space of of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual balance that I talked about earlier. Um, and uh, one of the things that I want to share as kind of my go-to, I know that it always picks me up, um, is a song uh, by Andra Day, and it's called Rise Up. It's yes. called Rise Up. Yes. And I, I can hear it. it in my head already. I'm just yeah. like, it, it is the song mm. that, you know, um, that just takes up space in my heart and in my head. Mm. Um, and and I love to belt it out uh, when I need ah. that energy. Yeah. Yes. yes. Great. Well, those of you who are familiar with the podcast know we actually have a playlist on Spotify with any songs that our guests have suggested. And so we will put that on the playlist for folks. And so if you want to hear that song, go to Spotify uh, you search find the outside. I think I'm sorry. This is Tim's domain, but I know that we have a, a playlist, and we'll put it in the show notes too. Um, and so, if anyone wants to hear that song, I love that song. You know, I actually have to tell you, I love listening to that song. Um, you know how airplanes are a little bit like out of time. Like that's how I just I always feel like when I'm on an airplane, I can sometimes get like like really spiritually lifted from music because I'm just kind of like you're neither here nor there. You're just kind mm-hmm. of in liminal space. And mm-hmm. that song, every time. It Mm. just takes me there. So love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gladys Rowe, for talking with us today. Um, It has been such a treat and a pleasure and and a great learning for us. And so we will link to your podcast in our show notes. Is there any other place that people can find you? Do you have a website or an IG or... Yeah, yeah, I do have a website. I have GladysRow.com. Um, it hosts uh, my podcast right now and a, a bit of a blog that I'm trying to uh, find time to get going. Uh, I was joking the other day, I have, you know, bits and pieces of things that uh, that are three quarters of the way finished, but just some, some thoughts there. So I do have a website and uh, I am on LinkedIn so people can find me there as well. Great. Okay. And we'll put this all in the show notes so people won't have to search for it. You can just click on those. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you for the invitation. I'm so grateful. 
Thanks for saying yes. Okay, friends, we will talk to you next time. We'll be in your ears again soon. 